before I jump in, I just want to thank all of you uh, for praying for me and my family. It was two weeks ago today that my almost 87-year-old mother died in northern Indiana, and by God's grace, I was able to be there. I was able to be at her bedside as um, she passed away. Over the last couple months, we've had a lot of good conversations about the gospel. I've been encouraged uh, by that. Six days after my mother died, this would be a week ago yesterday, our family gathered in Northern California where I married my sister's oldest son. Now, this week, we are waiting for daughter number four, Kelly, who lives in Southern California to give birth to her first child and our grandchild number five. And right now Kelly's about four days overdue. I won't mention our college students' surgery in between, but all that to say the last couple of weeks have been just crazy uh, for us. And I frankly believe it's your prayers and the prayer support of this church that has carried us. So thank you. Thank you very much. Now we come this morning to the end of this five week, this short series on faith and work, on integrating uh, our faith with our work. A couple of years ago, I did a much longer series in the book of Proverbs on living a life of wisdom. I didn't know it at the time, but there was a guy uh, sitting here week after week, a guy in our church who, as he tells it, was taking copious notes on the Proverbs on this series. And to make a, a long story short, what was going on is he was wrestling with the principles of Proverbs as it relates to his work environment. And he began to conceive of writing a code of conduct, a value statement that would um, work in a diverse secular environment like the company he worked for. Now ultimately, that code of conduct got approved <clears throat> and adopted, get this, by all 350,000 employees. And it started right here in the book of Proverbs. Now I want you to meet this guy, at least by video, and listen to why integrating faith and work is so important for Rich. Let's watch this. I joined Accenture in 1987 and my first boss was the most difficult one I've ever had in my entire life. No matter how hard I tried, I could not win this guy over. My career was going sideways. I was fearful that I was going to lose my job. Knowing I wasn't going to win this guy over, I pivoted and I had singular focus on serving, serving clients doing excellent work and, and building relationships with people. I was 100% all in. I had some good wins and my career was accelerating. 
But at the same time, I was fearful. I wasn't content. I worried. And it just didn't feel as if there was purpose in my life. During these days, I was gone about 50% of the time. I was always on a plane going from one place to another. But one plane ride was different from all the other. I was flying from LA to Chicago, pouring through Romans. And on that flight, while reading Romans, I came to a saving faith. In that moment, I understood that the way, the truth, and the life was through Jesus, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. I fused my faith and my work. I looked to do the right thing, even when it wasn't popular. One time, one of our guys bribed a prince in Saudi Arabia to win some big contract. I went to his boss and I explained the problem. And he said to me, you will have to go through me before you put a bullet in him. We ultimately fired the guy who made the bribe. And we went to the Department of Justice and we told our story, which is how you handle this kind of matter. The changes in me were substantial. You might even say radical. But the biggest, the biggest change, the biggest change when I integrated my faith and my work is the fear was replaced by flourishing, by bringing my heart to work. The fear was replaced by flourishing when I brought my heart to work. And while I was successful before I became a believer, after I became a believer, I flourish both professionally and personally. And so as I work, I'm, I'm purposeful and intentional about working for the glory of God. Now, in light of Rich's story, and so many of you have stories that are similar to that, you know, the question is, what is uh, uh, work and faith integrated look like? And let me just give you a statement, and I'll say this a couple of times over the um, uh, course of this morning. To integrate your faith means you are joining King Jesus in his mission to restore a broken planet. You're joining King, the King Jesus, in his mission of restoring a broken planet. And when you bring faith and work together, that's what you're about. Now this morning, what I want to do is I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about culture, I want to talk about vision, and I want to talk about the gospel. Culture is the context for our work. Vision is the target we're aiming at in our work. And the gospel, well, the gospel is the key to work. So let's start with culture. And let me jump into the deep end. Like many of you, I have been following this transgender bathroom debate. Now, some of you may be transgendered persons here today. Or maybe you have friends or family members um, that are. And I, I want you to know a little bit about where we are on this. So I want to tell you what I told a transgendered person 
who was a long-term attender of Wheaton Bible Church. And this conversation took place uh, a long time ago, um, 15, 16, 17 years ago. And, and, and what I said was this. I said, you are welcome to attend Wheaton Bible Church. And that went on for years. And I said, and we will do everything we can by God's grace to love you. And to the glory of God, that also happened over the course of years and years. But I also want you to know that we believe that God not only created us male and female, but he also called that permanent distinction fixed at birth very good. Now, yes, I get the fact that there are some rare medical anomalies. I've talked to a couple of physicians about that over the years. But in the vast majority of cases, gender distinction is fixed by God. We say at birth, frankly, even before birth. We know that because of science today. But so recently, in the state of North Carolina, I just talked to some people after the last service that lived there, um, uh, the state did something that I think is rather logical. Uh, they uh, asserted that people should use the restrooms that correspond to the gender that is indicated on their birth certificate. And you know the result. It created a huge uproar on all sides, and then the U.S. government stepped in. Now, why the uproar? Because what's at stake isn't just personal freedom. It isn't merely civil rights. And it isn't, on the other side of the debate, uh, merely sexual privacy. What's at stake is much deeper and it's our culture's rapidly accelerating, nonstop rejection of God's created order. Look at this quote from the writer Joel Bells. Did any of us expect a decade ago the speed with which our culture would accept and then codify same-sex marriage? It is with the same lightning speed that our whole society is accepting new falsehoods about our sexual identity that a very short, short time ago would have seemed unimaginable. Now you're thinking, why in the world do I start a, a, a message on faith and work like this? And the reason is, this is the culture you are going to work in. For good or for ill. And as I've been saying over the last couple of weeks, if you know Jesus Christ, you are in full-time ministry, and one of your primary ministries is your vocation. Uh, whether you're a banker or a broker, a stay-at-home mom, a, a mechanic or a plant manager, or a retiree. And the Bible does not give any of us the option of withdrawing from culture or hating it. Now let me show you this. Grab your Bibles and turn to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. There's Bibles in the racks in front of you. Uh, you're welcome to, to grab one of those, take one of those. 
And I want you to turn in the book of Genesis to chapter 41. And here we catch up to a very fascinating man by the name of Joseph. And at this point in chapter 41, Joseph is a 30-year-old. And even though he's a 30-year-old, he's now been appointed the number two man in all of Egypt, second only to the mighty Pharaoh. And this is a remarkable turn of events. Uh, Joseph earlier had been rejected by his brothers. He had been sold into slavery in Egypt. He had been imprisoned in Egypt for years. And now he's the number two guy in all of Egypt. Furthermore, Joseph was a Jew. He believed in one God, Yahweh. Pharaoh and all the Egyptians were polytheists and believed in numerous, innumerable actually, gods and goddesses. Now let's pick it up in verse 41. Chapter 41, verse 41. And I want you to see this description of how Joseph is appointed into his vocation. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command and people shouted before him, make way. Then he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Or thus he put him, Joseph, in charge of the whole land, the whole land, the whole land. Now what's remarkable about this, what's remarkable to me, is that the Egyptians were highly immoral, highly idolatrous, uh, uh, wicked people. They're just about to enslave and brutalize Israel for 400 years. And yet God doesn't tell Joseph to withdraw from Egypt or to hate Egypt or even to take down Egypt so the four centuries of brutality won't happen, God appoints Joseph to lead Egypt. And Joseph knows this is God's calling. Look at verse 52. The second son, he that is Joseph, named Ephraim, and said, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering, his bondage, his, his imprisonment. Now, what in the world is God doing? This is like crazy. I mean, from a culture or sociological perspective, every culture has good and bad elements. Elements that are consistent with God's plan and elements that are very far from God's plan. But for Joseph to lead idolatrous Egypt? What's going on? Well, what's going on is that God is in the process of saving Israel through Joseph. Preserving the line of the Redeemer promised as early as Genesis chapter 3 through Joseph. But there's another thing going on, and frankly, this is the stunner to me. Uh, God is also using Joseph to preserve Egypt. Because Joseph will save both Egypt and Israel from this coming mega disastrous famine. 
Now, those of you in the marketplace uh, or, or public school, public university, uh, those of you that work in factories or, or uh, you own a factory or you work in a restaurant or you own a, a restaurant, to be a believer, again, is to be in full-time ministry, whether you're peeling potatoes or you're the president of a major international corporation. And it's to have a vocational calling from God every bit as important as mine, any missionary. And that's what we were talking about the first two weeks in this series. But what Joseph teaches us is that God has called you to even seek the good of evil Egypt. The culture you live in. Now for those of you who aren't sure about Christianity, uh, you have some doubts about Christianity, I, I want you to understand, here we see the beauty of Christianity, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Joseph is a picture, an Old Testament picture, pointing to Jesus, hinting at Jesus. Now, now what do I mean? What's the beauty here? Well, what does secularism uh, teach us today? Secularism teaches, uh, it tends to make people individualistic. I'm going to do what I want to do. That's our culture. And religion, on the other hand, tends to make people rigid, self-righteous, and tribal. But it's the gospel, and Joseph here points to the gospel, that destroys both self-centeredness on the one hand and isolation on the other, and calls us to a life of service that benefits all people, Egypt, Israel. And I find this just fascinating. I mean, it's a Memorial Day weekend. If our soldiers can lay down their lives for our country, how are we as Christ followers ever to withdraw from it? Condemn it, hate it. How, are, how can we not serve our culture? You see, like Joseph and Jesus, we are exiles. We are part of a countercultural movement for Jesus Christ. And we must never, ever give up, no matter how bad culture gets. And so parents, hear me. Before God, I plead with you to raise your children to love the city. To love Chicago. To love culture. To be discerning of course, but raise them not merely to be a really good athlete or a really good artist, but to serve the world through their athletics, uh, their art, their careers, even as culture gets harder. I mean, who knows who among us will be the next Joseph? Who knows? Now that's culture. Let me go on to vision. And by vision, I mean the target we're aiming at in work. So what I'd like you to do is turn ahead about, oh, 800 pages or so in your Old Testaments to the prophecy of Ezekiel. 
and Ezekiel chapter 37. If you're using a Bible from the rack, it's page, about page 865. So we're moving to the prophecy of Israel and we're moving through a lot of the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, by the time we get to Ezekiel 37, 1,300 years, uh, give or take some, have gone by since the time of Joseph. And not quite 1,500 years, but a, but a long time. And what we have in Ezekiel 37 is a famous, familiar vision. And the, the vision is a picture. It's a picture uh, that God gives the prophet Ezekiel of the restoration of Israel back into the land. And it's secondarily also a picture of the resurrection of God's people. One of the few Old Testament uh, treatments of the resurrection. So let's start in Ezekiel 37 and verse 1. Uh, I just love this passage. The hand of the Lord was on me. Ezekiel's writing, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. This is a mass gravesite. And he asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. That's a bad answer, Ezekiel. Right? I mean, of course, God. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. And I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and will come, you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Now let's skip a little, skip down to verse 10. So I, Ezekiel, prophesied as God commanded me, and the breath entered them, and they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope is gone. We've been cut off from our homeland. Therefore prophesy and to say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, my people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. Incredible. Now this vision is a metaphor. It's a metaphor of God supernaturally returning Israel to the promised land because Israel when this is written, is in exile in the evil, tyrannical superpower of Babylon, the very country that had destroyed Jerusalem. And here we learn, if you look at verse 12, that Israel is in despair. Her hope is gone. Uh, in despair, we'll never get back to the promised land. We're cut off. Mothers and fathers of... Uh, mother, uh, Jewish mothers and fathers aren't sleeping at night. They haven't been sleeping a night for years because they are worried sick that Babylon is going to destroy their children and their families will never see the promised land. Years ago, I was in an Eastern European country. A couple years after the fall of the Iron Curtain and I was robbed by a soldier 
of that country in uniform holding a big old machine gun. Now there's a story to that that I won't go into, but let me speculate for a moment. What if in a weird turn of events, that soldier somehow was able to get me thrown into jail and then into prison? And then after a couple years of languishing in prison, I was never allowed to leave that Eastern European country at all. And what if that soldier carrying the machine gun had murdered my junior high age daughter who was with me? That's Israel in Babylon. It couldn't be worse. Couldn't be worse. And yet, uh, as we saw a, a couple of weeks ago, in a parallel passage in Jeremiah 29, God calls Israel to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city of Babylon. Now here, Ezekiel 37 looks ahead, and it's all about restoration and a return to the promised land and also hints at resurrection. But I mention this passage because I see four vision pieces here that taken together give us an incredible vision for why we do what we do in the marketplace. Piece number one, culture, I'm back to culture for a moment, is often so hostile like Babylon and works so difficult that while making money is doable, spiritual influence seems impossible. We feel like everyone around us is dry bones. Uh, this wedding I did, it was in a vineyard on a hill in Napa Valley. The setting couldn't have been more picturesque. It was a family deal. And then lots of others. And yet, what Ezekiel is feeling, what Ezekiel is feeling is exactly what I felt at that wedding. So many dry bones, spiritual dry bones all around me. Second piece, our hope. Here we go. Our hope and our vision for the city, for Chicago, and for your work in Chicago is that the Holy Spirit can and will make dry bones live. Amen? I mean, the main actor in Ezekiel 37 is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is mentioned at least 10 times because the word breath that is repeated throughout this um, uh, section is the same Hebrew word translated spirit in verse 2. Spirit and breath are the same. So the point of this passage is that in the midst of the darkest uh, of all situations, all environments, the deepest despair, a mass grave site, the spirit of the living God is present. And he can and he will make dry bones live. And that's your vision. That's the target you're aiming at when you go to work. God, make dry bones live. 
So your confidence isn't in your skill set, it's not in your smarts, it's not in your abilities, it's in the spirit of the living God. As a matter of fact, we have a name for genius in the marketplace, and it's the Holy Spirit. It's Ezekiel 37. The third vision piece here comes as we ask the question, so much of Bible study is asking questions of the text. And the question we ask is, why does God choose to use Ezekiel here? Uh, Or why does he choose to use Joseph to preserve Egypt and Israel and and the famine? Uh, Why doesn't uh, God just feed Egypt and Israel? Why doesn't the Holy Spirit just make these dry bones alive? Well, Well, the answer is because From the beginning of time with Adam and Eve, God's plan has been to use human agents as agents of the Holy Spirit to bring about restoration and renewal. And this is fantastic. God wants to use you in the marketplace to be an Ezekiel. Yeah, dry bones all around. I, I, I get that. That's a chapter. God wants to use you uh, as an agent of the power and the presence and the glory of the Holy Spirit in your school, in your, your neighborhood, your retirement community, your, your office, your, your factory. Incredible. Now, the last, vision piece number four. And here I, here I want to speak to you young adults and you students. And what I want to, and here's what I want to say. Avoid the passion trap. Or what some people today call the passion hypothesis. Which is the idea that the key to vocational happiness is to figure out what you're passionate about and then to pursue it to the death. Now, some of that is biblical. Some of it is common sense. I mean, uh, God doesn't want you to pick a career and, and go after it that you simply have no confidence, competence for. You do not want me to be your car mechanic. Your car will not work. In the same way, God doesn't want us to grab something that, uh, so we can be miserable uh, the rest of our lives. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 9.27, interesting passage on this. Uh, Paul is speaking to the church at Corinth, and he says, man, if you want to go, if these people invite you to eat and they're non-Christians, if you want to go, Paul doesn't say pray about it, Paul says go. In other words, follow your desires, follow, follow your passion. But here's the deal today for young adults and students. The deal is a good thing, passion, has shifted and become the ultimate thing. And that's true, uh, especially among millennials. Uh, So uh, let me speak to that for just a second. Uh, First of all, there is no psychological or sociological evidence that all of us have a dominant, pre-existing, permanent passion to discover. Now, sometimes that happens. 
It's just been clear kind of from the beginning. But for most of us, we're, we're going to be more nimble. And, and um, maybe hold several different uh, jobs in several different areas uh, out of several different strengths we have over the course of our working career. But, but more important uh, for me is this passion emphasis. What I'm seeing in, in, in some quarters is this passion emphasis is putting incredible pressure on young adults to get vocation right prematurely. And what happens is it can create paralysis. But most importantly, in contrast to the work of Ezekiel, in contrast to the work of Joseph, in contrast to the cultural mandate of Genesis 1 and 2, to seek the good of the human race and to honor God, the passion hypothesis, if we overweight passion, encourages self-centeredness. By continually focusing on what I want to do and what the world has to offer me. Does this, what does this situation offer me rather than what I can offer the world? Now, now please, please don't misunderstand. I am not saying ignore your passions. I am saying don't overweight them. Listen to God. Listen to others. And always, always, always think about what can I do best to make dry bones live? How can I bless and serve others? Now that brings me to the end and to the third piece, the gospel. And the most important of all questions in this faith and work series is the question, how does the gospel relate to work? And the answer is the gospel is the key. Because it's the gospel that alone transforms a self-centered, self-absorbed heart. And we work from our hearts. Rich said it in the video. And it's a gospel that transforms our heart and enables us to live lives that seek to bless and serve others, even our enemies. You see, the gospel isn't just a belief. The gospel is a power. It's a power that changes everything. It changes your heart motivations. It changes your relationships. It changes your family dynamics. It changes your work. How? How does the gospel do that? Well, when God opens your eyes and you see the extent of the depth of Jesus' suffering torture, and death for you. And you understand that love and all that misery and agony and brutality that Jesus went through uh, for you was uh, uh, undeserved and certainly unearned. And the love of Jesus begins to jostle around in your heart. And you feel it. 
And you feel how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is the love of God in in Jesus Christ that changes you, that transforms you, that saves you. And it creates a biblical passion for the work God has called you to do. The work of serving others that you simply can't come come up with on your own. And a passion for serving others that's rooted in the gospel that will sustain you in the the most difficult periods of work. And it's the gospel that delivers you from the demon of disengagement that characterizes our American view of life and especially retirement. So what I'm saying is when you behold, when you bask in, when you see Jesus crucified and and you believe it and you feel it and it's driven through every fiber of your body, then that unleashes a power, a, a, a power in your life. The only power that is sufficient to deliver you from your sinful heart. The only power that will keep you from... T- tethering your self-worth to your success. The only power that will enable you to overcome being angry or coming unglued at work. The only power that will deliver you from manipulating others rather than serving others and uh, deliver you from dishonesty rather than being honest. Seeing Jesus as a dying sacrifice frees you to be a living one. A living one. So I'm back at the beginning. If work is joining King Jesus in his mission of healing, restoring our broken world, then the gospel is the first step and the last step and every step in between. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters that are here, all sorts of different life situations, and I would pray that you would give them the grace to see you and the love you offer us in Jesus and in seeing Would you change us for Jesus' sake? Amen.